This afternoon, we'll be looking at uh, God's Word as summarized in Lord's Day 25, the opening Lord's Day to the section on the Word and the Sacraments. You can find that on page 539 of your Book of Praise, Lord's Day 25. Since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does this faith come from? From the Holy Spirit, who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel and strengthens it by the use of the sacraments. What are the sacraments? The sacraments are holy, visible signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by their use he might the more fully declare and seal to us the promise of the gospel. And this is the promise, that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground for our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and assures us by the sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, with Lord's Day 25, we have entered a new area in the catechism. Prior to this, the Catechism has been working through the doctrine of justification, how we are made righteous before God. We can see from the previous Lord's Days that works play no part in our righteousness before God. Rather, the key part of our justification is faith. By faith, we take hold of what God has promised. Through faith, we are joined to Christ. And through faith, all of Christ's righteousness becomes our own. After seeing this, we have asked, is our faith a work that we can claim as our own? Sure, we say that we are saved through faith and works play no role, but doesn't that mean we are good before God on account of something that we have done? Doesn't that give our faith value? As we can see in Lord's Day 23, this is not the case. We read there, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Our faith, in and of itself, has no value. It is only the empty hand of the ragged and sickly beggar stretched out from the gutter where he lies. He does not deserve anything. He is not owed anything. Anything that is given to him is a complete gift coming from the graciousness of the giver. This leads us to the questions, where does this faith come from? And how is this faith worked out in our lives? we are going to consider this as summarized under the following theme and points. The Holy Spirit teaches us and assures us by the preaching of the gospel and by the sacraments that our full salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. We will reflect, first of all, on the Spirit who works faith, and secondly, 
the means of grace. I'm not sure how many of you have tried to convince a friend of something. Maybe it was what kind of car was better. You're adamant that Chevy is better, and your friend says, definitely not, Ford all the way. Or maybe, you're, maybe you are a Leafs fan, while your sister is a diehard Ottawa Senators fan. Whatever you try to do to convince these people of your case, whatever angle you take, they can't be made to see reason. But maybe it's something more serious. Maybe your friend has stopped going to church, or your brother is questioning. And maybe you've talked to that person and they've hardened their hearts. No matter what you try or what you say, they do not understand and they do not care. They simply don't believe that God is who he says he is or care about it. Why, you ask? Why do they not care? Why don't they listen? What can we do about it? To understand, we need to consider the source of our faith. Where does it come from? Not from ourselves, assures the catechism. Not from ourselves at all. Maybe you've had Jehovah's Witnesses come by your door who argued that God saw a seed of faith in a person before he chose them, setting them apart from everyone else. But this is not what the Holy Spirit teaches us in Scripture. The Holy Spirit teaches us just what the catechism says. Our faith is given to us. It comes from the outside. Let's take a look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, the verses 8 to 10 here says... For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you are the type to highlight or underline in your Bible, make a note of this because it's a very important verse, set of verses. They're worth memorizing. Now, take a look at verse 8 in particular. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There's nothing within one person to set them apart. Nothing to make you stand out before God. It's all a gift. Of myself, I am worthless, we can say. But God has chosen to work in me. If you believe, if you have faith, you have the knowledge that God has chosen to work in you. Isn't this an amazing thing, brothers and sisters? Through what avenue have we been granted faith? Through the enlightening and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But what does this mean? Well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, 
1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 10 and going to verse 14. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man, for what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been given freely to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. What we have read here shows us what God has done in man. No one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. The way of redemption, the way of salvation, that it is by him that we stand before holy, awesome, almighty God and say with certainty that we who are poor, pitiful, and hopeless can be accepted. Holding fast to Christ and his one sacrifice on the cross. These are all things of God. That is what God has revealed to us through his spirit. If it was up to ourselves, we wouldn't go any further than ourselves. We would try to hold up our works which far, which far fall short of the perfection required and try to make a go of things in our strength. That's natural, man. The gospel says that you recognize your own sin and flee from it. Life's not about passions and pleasures, but bringing glory to God and finding joy in him. Being willing to go to church to worship. Being willing to accept a modest pay compared to what you could get elsewhere so that you can remain a part of the communion of saints. There are men who fly in and fly out of the, mount, uh, fly in and fly out of the mines and make incredible amounts of money at the expense of church community. Some of these guys are really rough guys. Not all, but some of them are. And to these men, the fly, these fly-in, fly-out guys, such a choice is ridiculous. Working in the mines and making incredible amounts of money for personal pleasures is what life is about. The cross is foolishness, and guys who aren't willing to go up for religious reasons are religious fanatics. They don't understand the incredible kind of comfort that we can find from a Psalm 139 kind of God, a God who hedges us in behind and before. So what does the Holy Spirit then do? He opens our hearts. One great example of this is found in Acts 16. There, Paul goes out to preach the gospel to the local people of Philippi. Among them, he finds a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple cloth from Thyatira. She's a smart woman. You have to have some business smarts to be able to sell something as high quality as purple cloth. It was a specialty item back in the day. But it wasn't her keen mind that allowed her to grasp the gospel and believe it. We read in Acts 16 verse 14 that the Lord 
opened her heart to heed the things spoken of by Paul. A special act of the Holy Spirit, apart from any merit of her own, picked her out of the crowd. Not everyone who heard Paul obeyed the call they heard. Not everyone was saved. The Lord, working through his Holy Spirit, reached out to this woman and claimed her as his own. In the Old Testament, this was spoken of as circumcising the heart. In Deuteronomy 30, the Lord speaks to the people of Israel, telling them to hear his voice and to obey him. But it also emphasizes that when they do obey, it's not simply of their own accord. He says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The Israelites had to realize that what they received was from the Lord. Everything they received from him, even their love for him, They were called to cling to him and rely on him for everything. Maybe you're a parent, a sibling, or a close friend to someone who has wandered from the faith. And you struggle. You don't know why this person isn't listening to you. You don't know why something which seems so obvious and so real to you doesn't seem to have an effect on them. You don't know why they can't see what you see. Beloved, you can't convince them. I'll say that again. You can't convince them. At the end of the day, it's not up to you. This is why God emphasizes so strongly that it is his work. As hard as it is, As heartbreaking as it can be, you have to let go of trying to convince them in your own strength. Trying to persuade them in your own strength. Don't see their refusal to understand as your own personal shortcoming. God never intended that. God never wanted that. And it's impossible for you to give them faith. Rather, lay your concerns about them at the foot of the cross. Bring that person before the word of the Lord and let the Lord do his work. It's the word of the Lord that has power. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Sometimes the devil has built a real stronghold in someone's life. It's very hard to see someone we love or care about in that position. But we need to find comfort in this. We don't fight with flesh and blood. We don't fight with persuasive arguments. In the end, we recognize that it is the Spirit's work that achieves the victory. And so we must bring those who stray before the power of the word because the word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit has divine power. And by it, the Holy Spirit demolishes the strongholds of the, people's de- of the devil in people's lives by making the will which was dead alive, which was bad, good, which was unwilling, willing, and which was stubborn, obedient. Don't underestimate the power of the word of God, brothers and sisters.
Because through it, the Lord works faith. And at the end of the day, his final decision is what we must submit to. We must leave it in his hands. Seeing the struggles that some people have, brothers and sisters, recognize the great gift that faith truly is in your life. If you have faith, recognize what a great gift that is in your life. The assurance that because of the work of Jesus Christ, you stand guilt-free before the throne of the Almighty God is something to marvel at and to take joy in. For faith is not something that you have in and of yourself, but it has been granted to you as a free gift by God himself. As we can read in Ezekiel, he is the one who puts a new heart and a new spirit within us. He is the one who takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh with which we can wholly love and serve our Savior with every beat. And it is this Savior, Jesus Christ, who has sent the Spirit to us. The Holy Spirit who works in us and renews our faith and repentance renews us to faith and repentance, was able to be sent to us because of the work of Christ. As we read in our passage, John 16, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. God dwells in us. He is the source of faith within us. Apart from him, we would not have this treasure in our lives, but thanks to Christ, we have riches beyond those that this earth can offer. The foolishness of the world is our strength and confidence on which we can cast all our cares. This is our second point, the means of grace. The Holy Spirit focuses our faith on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But he does not work alone. He is not simply a still, quiet voice whispering in the recesses of your heart. No, he works powerfully through the word and through the sacraments. And when the word is proclaimed, the people of God must gather to hear the gospel. Must? You might hear the response, all you care about is getting me to church. I don't need a church for that. I have a relationship with God. But what such a reply doesn't account for is the manner in which the Holy Spirit works. As we read in our passage, John 16, the Spirit of truth will guide us into all truth. Moreover, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The spirit of truth will guide us into the truth, the truth which we receive through the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. Christ himself highlights the importance of the preaching of the word in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower. The word goes out, but not everyone believes. Some have temporary belief, and some reject the word. But for all who respond, the means is the same, the proclamation of the gospel. We find a similar line in Romans 10. 
In Romans 10, verse 9 to 10, we read that famous passage that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth one confesses, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There, once again, the person and work of Jesus Christ is put at the center for being absolutely necessary for the salvation of those who believe. Without this gospel, this good news, you cannot see the depth of your own sin or you believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation. This is serious. Without the gospel, there is no way to heaven. Because without the gospel, you do not have Jesus Christ. With this weighing on his mind, Paul writes with great urgency in verses 14 to 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace who bring glad tidings of good things. How can people call on God in prayer if they do not believe in him? Consider this in your interactions with your unbelieving coworkers, neighbors, or friends, brothers and sisters. How can they call on him if they don't believe? And how can they believe in him of whom they've never heard? If no one tells them about the gospel, how can they believe? How can they hear without a preacher? How can those who preach do so without being sent? This, this is why Paul bursts out with a passionate, joyful cry. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. It's a beautiful thing to sit under the preaching of the word. It's a real gift to have preachers among us who have been sent from God. But we recognize that that's not always appreciated. The reality in our lives is that sometimes we appreciate the truth a great deal, but sometimes not so much. It's very possible that you're passionate some days and in other days you're not. Can you find evidence in your life of the joy of coming to church that reflects the amazing message we're taught? Some may only attend once, perhaps not even at all. Or sometimes we clock out the moment we settle down in the pews and get comfortable as the preacher begins. Yes, being present in body but absent in mind is just as much of a loss. If we do this, We scorn the spiritual banquet which has been laid out for us and it's to our own loss. We're only hurting ourselves. As Paul goes on to say, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the way we are saved. Hearing it is the way we are built up in the faith and when we lose out on a chance to hear the proclamation of the word of God, we starve ourselves. But if we take part in the worship service and take joy in the proclamation of the word, what pleasure we can get from this. The gospel is for all. 
That's the other side of the coin to the word soul and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Those who are weak are made strong. Those who mourn are comforted. And those who are joyful can be given greater joy, one that surpasses all measure. It's a beautiful thing to hear the gospel. Again and again we can bring bring our concerns and our worries and our sorrows to the foot of the cross. Week after week we can leave heartened and given strength once again by the good news that our sins are indeed forgiven us and we do stand as righteous before God. And as our faith grows, we will become passionate about the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We will become passionate about the name of our King, without whom no one can be saved. We will become passionate about hearing it proclaimed. And we will become emboldened to live out our calling as ambassadors of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. However, even with the preaching of the gospel, it's not always easy, is it? Sometimes things go well, but other times we drift. We might begin to doubt if it's true. Or maybe we're like David in Psalm 51, having fallen into serious sin and fearing that God will take his spirit from us. This, brothers and sisters, is why we must believe Believe that we have a Savior who has been righteous for us. And believe that he renews our hearts and minds. Simply being told to believe, however, isn't helpful. Isn't always helpful. In order to strengthen us with regards to this, our Lord Jesus Christ has given us the sacraments, baptism and Lord's Supper. The Catechism describes the sacraments as holy visible signs and seals. They were holy because they were signs that were set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 26, Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus confirmed the use of the sacrament of baptism when he told his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. These two were set apart to signify that the life and death of Jesus Christ are truly ours. That's the reason why we have two sacraments instead of the Roman Catholic seven. They are like road signs which point to the reality ahead. And like the seal you receive on your diploma after you graduate from college or university, signifying that you have indeed completed your studies, they are assurances that the suffering and death of Christ are indeed ours. But why do we have sacraments which so strongly highlight our salvation in Jesus Christ? Why don't we have an example which, a sacrament which, for example, highlights the work of the Holy Spirit? Because it is by making the suffering and death of Christ our own through faith that we are saved. That simple message is what it comes down to. That is why the Holy Spirit came. Like a spotlight shining down on the center stage, illuminating the person singing the solo, the Holy Spirit shines down on Jesus Christ, illuminating his person and work. 
He enlightens us as to the power of Jesus Christ, our King. It's as Jesus Christ himself said in the verses 13 to 14 of the passage we read from John 16 at the beginning of the service. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit will cause Jesus to be glorified through the proclamation of the gospel. He won't add to it. Some more extreme Pentecostals will claim that the Holy Spirit speaking in their hearts carries a higher authority than what has been revealed to us. But the Spirit of Truth, but the Spirit of Truth has chosen to limit Himself only to what God has revealed in His Word. And so the focus of our faith is drawn not to something new bubbling up within our own imagination. Rather, the focus of our faith is fully on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our salvation. As our high priest, he has fully accomplished everything for us. That is the good news that the Holy Spirit causes us to cling to by the faith he has worked in our hearts. What a message we can glory in. The sacraments are visible. They are an external display of what is happening internally. God gave the sacraments to us because of our weakness when it comes to plain words. Wives, fiancés, and girlfriends in our congregation, consider this. If your significant other did no more than tell you he loved you, gave no outward signs of affection to you, Would you believe him? Maybe in the beginning you might. But eventually the power of words wears off, doesn't it? It is human nature that we need outward, visible symbols of things that are internal and invisible. For example, what if your significant other brought you flowers from time to time or took you out for dinner or maybe took time out of his busy schedule and helped with the kids, helped with the dishes? Or what if he went out of his way in a different way that really showed that he knew your particular love language? Wouldn't that make you feel much more loved? God understands us in a much deeper way than we can even fathom. The sacraments are a very real sign of this for us. They are his way of visibly showing us that he understands our weaknesses. He understands the fact that we need to see something, to have something tangible. And so God has granted the sacraments as a demonstration of his infinite love toward his beloved bride and an outward show of an inward reality that is great beyond understanding. And it is even better. They are a seal. They are a declaration that as surely as we see the sacrament carried out, so certainly are the promises signified by them a reality. For Jesus Christ is their truth. And apart from him, they would be nothing. What Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf is ours without doubt and without question. 
What an incredible gift this is for us. From the beginning to the end, we are held in the palm of our loving and faithful Savior. If we feel our faith is weak or small, even as small as mustard seed, we can turn to the author and perfecter of our faith and rest in the assurance that he will give us what we need. A bruised wick, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not quench. Can we not see this in the lengths that he goes to for us? Even providing us with visible signs and seals to back up his promises that you have seen as recently as the last Lord's Supper that you attended and the last baptism that you witnessed? Rest in the assurance that is given to us by the sacraments that God graciously grants us forgiveness of sins and everlasting life because of the one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross. Praise God for this. Hold on to this. And love this. Amen.